Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We are excited that you came across this message. This sermon you are about to listen to is from our study through the New Testament book of James. If you are joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say welcome to Hope Church. Do us a favor and text NEW TO HOPE to 94090. After you hit send, you'll get an immediate response from our team with a link to a short form that you will fill out so that we can get to know you better. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Once again, thank you for joining us today. Enjoy the sermon. If you are watching online this weekend, you need to know that what we just sang is for real. The Lord is in this place. The Lord is in this place. Online is a cool thing that we've been able to use, and it's great in times of necessity, but I'm just telling you, the church needs to be together, and when the Lord shows up and the church is together, there is something special and powerful that happens. Wow. I'm glad I was here tonight. Amen. 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 I want to begin by showing you some pictures of trees. I know that just moved you deeply in this moment when God is moving in our midst, but I want to give you a little bit of an agricultural quiz. I'm going to put some pictures of some trees on the screen, and when I put a picture of a tree on the screen, I want you to immediately tell me what kind of tree it is, okay? It's going to be obvious, so just get ready. You can just get ready to blurt it out loud, all right? So I'm going to put some pictures up, and when I do, as soon as you see the picture of that tree, you tell me what kind of tree it is. Here is the first tree. What is this? An orange tree. Very good. You did awesome. See, not a trick question, not hard. I'm not throwing you a curveball. It's real obvious. There are oranges here, right? Okay, let me have the second tree. Here it is. It's an apple tree. It's an apple tree. It's a little bit hard to tell with some of these, but you can tell that's an apple tree when you really look at it, right? Somebody said peach, and that's, I can see where you might guess that, but it's an apple tree. You can see all these apples here. All right, here's the third kind of tree. Look at this one. What's this? There you go. That's a lemon tree. As soon as you see it, you know, right? So you're catching on. You're doing great. You're passing the quiz with flying colors. Here's the next kind. What's this? Everybody was just breezing right along and looking at this one. And then, well, here's what it is. This is an apple tree, okay? Just doesn't have any apples yet. And I did that for a reason, right? H- how did you know what every one of these pictures represented? How did you know what kind of tree it was? You knew it by what? By the fruit. It was the fruit on the outside that revealed what kind of tree it was on the inside. Second question, if the tree was dead, would there be any fruit? No. As soon as you saw it, you knew what kind of tree it was by the fruit that you saw. As we continue our journey through the book of James, we are going to discover that if our faith is alive and genuine, 
it will spill out of our lives and be clearly evident by the fruit that we bear. Just like when you could look at those trees and immediately other people, what James is about to teach us, James is about to show us that other people should be able to look at our lives and immediately without hesitation say, oh, I'll tell you who that is. That's a follower of Jesus. There is evidence on the outside of the faith that they profess to have on the inside. Now, James is writing here, and what James refers to, or what we're talking about fruit, James calls works. James refers to this fruit as works that are demonstrated through our lives. And in James's letter, he's teaching about the relationship between faith and works. If you have your Bible, open it to James chapter 2. If you're visiting with us, we're studying straight through this New Testament letter written by the half-brother of Jesus. We come to the second half of chapter 2 this weekend. And we're again going to read, like last weekend when Pastor Brian was here, a larger section of Scripture because James is dealing with one idea in this large section of Scripture. It's the idea of the relationship between faith and works. We're going to read 12 verses of Scripture. The word faith is referenced 13 times, either in noun or verb form. The word works is mentioned 11 times. So these verses are dominated by the relationship between faith and works. Let's pick it up in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works, is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out 
by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. James is talking to us, if you hadn't picked up on it yet, about faith and works and how they relate to one another. And I want to unpack this, these verses that we've just read this weekend. I want to unpack them with two truths and a question. So we're going to look at two truths that James is teaching here. And you've got to understand, James is teaching here not in contradiction to what Paul has taught in the New Testament about faith. James is teaching and adding to what Paul has been teaching us when we've read in other places of Scripture. All of Scripture works together to teach us the whole counsel of God. So we're going to look at two truths, and then we're going to ask a very penetrating question towards the end. If you're ready, say amen. Truth number one, faith alone saves. Say that out loud with me. You ready? One, two, three. Faith alone saves. This is a major theme of the teaching of the Apostle Paul. When you read in places like Galatians, when you read in the book of Romans chapters 5, 6, and 7, Paul does a, a major job of teaching on this subject that faith alone saves us. This single truth here that, that we're talking about, faith alone saving us, is so important because it actually is what distinguishes the gospel from every other false gospel and every false religion. And what James is doing here is not contradicting the truth that faith alone saves. James is reinforcing the truth that faith alone saves. R.C. Sproul is a writer that I enjoy reading. Listen to what R.C. Sproul said about this subject, faith alone saves. He said, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. The article that is so important, Luther said, that if we lose it, we lose Christianity. Did you hear that? If we lose this truth that faith alone saves, Martin Luther, the great reformer, says, we lose Christianity. If you don't have the doctrine of justification by faith alone, you don't have the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel, the church has no reason to exist. The way that we come to know God, the way that we are saved is by faith and faith alone. This single truth answers the deepest question of the human heart. How can I know that I am right with God? Everybody in this room has been to more funerals than you ever wanted to go to in your life. It's probably the worst part of my job being a pastor. Is you've, I've wound up over the years, 31 years of ministry, I've been at hundreds and hundreds of funerals. I've been in those moments at bedsides when somebody took their last breath. I've seen people die, leave this life physically. A few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, I had the, the opportunity to preach a funeral for a family in our fellowship whose 
little son that was 11 years old had died. He'd been sick for some time. And funerals are always difficult, but they're even more difficult and challenging when it's a parent burying a child. It's just not natural. There's something unnatural about that. But if you've ever been to a funeral, if you've been to one recently, you just know there's those moments in every funeral, particularly when it's a little 11-year-old child, when you sit there and you just are face-to-face with the frailty and the brevity of life. And I don't care who you are. Everybody in that moment facing death thinks about what happens after this life? Because you just realize in that moment, it's quick, man. This life doesn't last long. That question, what happens after this life? How do I know that I've been accepted by God when this life is over and the one who sits on the throne of the universe, I stand? How do I know that, that I'm accepted by God? Here's the reality every major religion and every false gospel answers that question the same way, and it's one word, and here's the word do. Every false gospel, every world religion, you boil it down the question, how do I know I'm right with God? Here's what they say. You got to do something. Now, the doing changes depending on which flavor of religion you've scooped into your bowl, right? I mean, maybe it's the five pillars of Islam. Maybe it's the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. Maybe it's karma that is taught in Eastern thought. Or maybe it's the moral code of conduct that is embraced by much of so-called American Christianity. But here's the way you answer the question in one of those world religions or in any false gospel. If you want to know you are right with God when it's all over, you got to make sure you do something. And if you don't do all the right stuff and not do all the wrong stuff, you can never know you're right with God. But the gospel of Jesus teaches the exact opposite. The gospel of Jesus answers this, word, this question with one word too. You know what it is? Done. Done. Everything that needed to happen in order for you and I to be made right with God has already been done. It's already finished. Listen, it's really not good news if there's something you got to do. Think about that for a second. I got myself in this mess. If it's up to me, To do the right things, to get myself out of this mess, that's not good news. But the word gospel is a word that at its core, it's a Greek word that literally means good news. And that's why when Jesus died on the cross, the last words Jesus spoke on earth, you know what they were? It is finished. It's done. Everything that needed to happen for you and I to be made right with God was finished. When Jesus died, my friend David Platt said it this way. 
God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ, get this, to live the life we could not live and die the death we deserve to die. Christ took the wrath we rightly deserve and gave us the righteousness we cannot merit. And the way we get in on it is simply by, get this, faith. It's faith. Everything that needed to be done for you to be forgiven and to be accepted by God as his child, Jesus has already done. And all you and I have to do is receive it by faith. Let me show it to you. Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 2. Look what he said in Ephesians 2 verse 8. He said, for by, say it out loud, for by grace you know what grace is right that's done that that's God has grace is talking about the fact that God has already done everything grace is is getting what I don't deserve grace is God doing for me what I cannot do on my own for by grace you've been saved how through say it out loud And just in case you're not clear what point he's driving home here, he says, and that not of yourselves. It is the what? Gift of God. How do you get a gift? You receive it. Listen, if you got to do something, it stopped being a gift. Not as a result of, say that word out loud. The word works is a Greek word that means something to be done. Something you have to do. Paul said, it's all what God's already done. By faith, you simply receive it. It has nothing to do with anything you're going to do. So that just in case you wanted to, you got no grounds for boasting. Here's what that means. Nobody ought to come strutting into church, right? We all got here the same way, by the grace of God. He did for us what we could not do on our own. That's what James is doing here when James gives us the example of Abraham. James is quoting from the Old Testament book of Genesis chapter 15. Look at James chapter 2, verse 20. I'll put it back up here. It says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as what? Say it out loud righteousness two things happen in this verse two things the first one says Abraham what believe that's the verb form of the noun faith in these verses same root word this is just it as a verb to express faith is to believe what did Abraham do he believed what did he believe he believed God You see, there's one way to be saved from Genesis to Revelation in the Bible, and it's by faith. Some people have this mistaken idea that in the Old Testament, the way people got saved was by keeping the law, and in the New Testament, now people are saved by faith. That's not true. The Bible says here, Abraham in the Old Testament, he believed God. Now, the difference is Abraham believed looking forward He looked forward in faith based on the promise that God had made that he was going to send a Messiah. He was going to send someone into the world who was going to reconcile and redeem humanity back to God. 
You and I today, we're saved by faith looking backward, not on a promise, but on a person who came as the fulfillment of the promise. But whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, it's by faith. Abraham believed God. Here's the second thing that happened. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The word reckoned, it's not originally a spiritual word. It wasn't a church word. It was actually a math word. It was an accounting term. It means to credit something to someone's account. The Bible says Abraham, by faith, trusted in the promise of God to send a Messiah into the world, and God did something to his account. He reckoned. Let me give you a definition of reckoning as it applies in the Bible. Here it is. Look at it on the screen. Reckoning is the act of God whereby he credits Christ's perfect righteousness to the sinner's account and declares the debt fully forgiven. Somebody should have shouted hearing that definition. I'm going to read it one more time for you just so you get it. Reckoning is the act of God whereby he, God, credits Christ's perfect righteousness to the whose account? (laughs) To the sinner's account. And declares the debt (laughs) done, fully forgiven. Here's what that means. When you came to God as a sinner, having rebelled against God, having stepped across His boundaries, having rejected God's laws, God's ways, God's authority, God's sovereignty, when I, when you, when we came to God as a sinner and we threw ourselves on the grace and mercy of God, God responded by crediting to our account the righteousness of Christ Himself. Here's what that means. When God looks at your account right now, you know what He sees? Done. Done. Let me show it to you in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul said, He made him, God the Father made him, Jesus, God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, when Jesus died, he took all of your sin and all of my sin, all of my unworthiness, all of my unholiness, every lustful thought, every wrong word, every angry response. He took it all on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus, the one who lived the perfect life I could not live, Jesus offered his body as a substitute for my sin. He took all the junk of my life on himself, and he drank the full bowl of the judgment of God against sin, and he died. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again as a testimony that God had accepted his sacrifice for our sin so that now you and I by faith can grab a hold of Jesus and when we do what gets credited to us is the righteousness of Christ himself. Here's what that means. When you've been in heaven for 10,000 years you'll be no more righteous before God than you are right now because you can't get any more righteous than God himself. And he already sees you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You say, why? 
Why would God do that? This is the mind-blowing part. Because He loves you. Let that sink in for a minute. God loves you. Faith alone saves. There's a second truth. The faith that saves is never alone. The faith that saves is never alone. That's what James is teaching us, laying on the foundation of other scriptures that teach us justification by faith alone, faith alone saves. And there's actually a famous quote in Christian history. Some say it's attributed to Martin Luther. Others say it's John Calvin. I'm just going to say it's James. Here's what it says. It is faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Three times in this passage, James is emphasizing this truth. I'm going to show you. Verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? You see what he's saying? How can somebody say, oh, I've got faith, but there's no evidence. There's no working out of that faith in their lives. Yes, it is faith alone that saves, but James is saying the faith that saves is never alone. Look at verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And then in verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. I said earlier, this Greek word works, it's used three times in those verses I just read. It's used eight other times in this passage of Scripture. The word works is a word that means something done. Works are the outward visible evidence of inward saving faith. Did you hear that? Works are the outward, visible evidence of inward, saving faith. Works do not earn our salvation. Did you hear that? Works do not earn our salvation. What was the first truth? Faith alone saves. Works do not earn our salvation. Works give evidence of our salvation. That has been received by grace through faith. Let me take you back to those famous verses by Paul in Ephesians 2. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The problem is a lot of Christians stop reading right there and say, I'm good. But look what he says next. 
for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what are these works? Well, for sake of time, what I want to do is boil it all down to its simplest form. Anything that the Bible would call works, good works, the works from salvation, any of those works, you boil it down, here's what they are. The life of Jesus in me being lived through me. That's works. Faith alone saves. By faith, we receive the gift of salvation. The gift of salvation means Christ, by His Spirit, comes to live in us. What James is teaching is the Christ who lives in us, if our faith is genuine, is now a Christ who will live through us. And it will be evidenced in the way we live our lives. You think about any good work, you boil it down, here's what it is, the life of Jesus in me being lived through me. Now to make this as practical as I can, I want to give you three defining statements about faith and works. Here's the first one. It is through faith alone I have been saved. Now, we've already unpacked this. That was the whole first point of this message, faith alone saves. It is through faith alone that I have been saved. Read that out loud with me. It is through faith alone that I have been saved. Here's the second statement. Being saved by faith means God is now changing me. Salvation is not a moment. Salvation is is a movement. It's a movement of God that begins in your life at the moment of faith and works in your life into eternity where God is at work conforming us to the image of Jesus. A faith that saves us is a faith that changes us as we begin to be conformed to the image of Christ. Let me show it to you in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Again, Paul writes here and he says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being... Say it out loud. Do you hear that, that the tense of that? Are being transformed. Is that finished or is it still happening? Still happening. Right? Are being. It's, it's present active. It's continuous action. Now... What was done is at the moment of salvation, when I put my faith in Christ positionally before God, I am saved. I'm as righteous before God as I'm ever going to be. But before men, before others, He is working out in my life practically the righteousness that is mine positionally as I'm being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. That word transformed, it's a Greek word, metamorpho. We get an English word from it, metamorphosis. 
It describes an inward change that is outwardly visible. Here's the good news. It's something that God's going to finish. He said in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 that, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to finish what he started. One day, one day, one day. The stuff that we deal with right now, we won't deal with anymore because he will finish what he started. Here's what that means. Salvation is not you and I working hard to change our lives. Salvation is God at work in us through our union with Christ conforming us to His image. And works are the outward visible evidence of the change that God is making in our lives. And the point James is driving home is if there's no evidence, the faith is not real. It's not genuine. It's not true. So here's the third part, the third statement I want to give you. Let's put them them back up here. It is through faith alone that I've been saved. Being saved by faith means God is now changing me. Now, we're in a process. We hadn't arrived yet. Amen? Don't look at them, but they hadn't arrived yet. We're in a process. Works are the change in me spilling out of me that allows others to know my faith is real. When James said here uh, in this text of Scripture, he refers to us being justified by works. It's not a justified before God. We've already been justified before God the moment we put our faith in Christ. The justification that James is talking about is a justification in in front of my brothers and sisters in Christ and the world that is watching my life. The word justified means to show to be righteous. I've been declared to be righteous by God, and as I live out my faith, the righteousness of Christ in me is shown in and through my life. Now, in one sense, it's going to look very different in every one of our lives. Because think about it. We're all at different places in the process. Amen? I mean, some of us are further along than others. Some of us just came to Christ, just getting started. Some have been walking with Jesus for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. So we're at different places in the process. So it's going to look different in one sense... But in another sense, there's going to be a sameness about it. You know why? Because we're all being conformed into the same image. We're at different parts on the journey. But here's what it's going to ultimately look like out of our love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. What is that? It's a nine-dimensional configuration of the person of Jesus Christ. So it's different, meaning I can't look at somebody else and think I've arrived because I'm further along than them or look at somebody else and get all guilty about where I am because they're further. No, we're all at different places in the process, but man, I ought to begin to smell something similar. James gives us an example. Look back at verse 15. 
James says, let me make this real practical. If a brother or sister is without food, or excuse me, without clothing, and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace. Now, you got to know, go in peace is a familiar Jewish form of dismissal. It's really a way to say, have a nice day. If you have a brother or sister in Christ who's without clothing, without food, they're in need. And your response is, have a nice day. And then he says, be warmed, be filled. In the Greek language, those are either middle or passive verbs. Meaning, it's either saying, go warm and fill yourself. That's the middle voice. (laughs) I'm a Christian. I've put my faith in Jesus. There's a brother or sister in need. Have a good day. Go Go fix your own problems. Or in the passive voice, it'd be, find somebody else to do that for you. Listen to what James says. Go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. (laughs) What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Here's what James says. Listen, the first, the first, this is proven in the teaching of Jesus in John 14 and 15. It's proven in the teaching of John in the epistle 1 John. It's proven in the teaching of Paul. James here is proving the same thing. The first obvious evidence that Jesus has come to live inside of me is he begins to give me a love for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And if there is not a genuineness of love and a display... Now listen, we're going to all be at different places in the process, but James said, if you can't hear a brother or sister in need and something inside of you is not moved to respond to that, James said, the faith you're professing is a dead faith. Let me say it another way. It's not a saving faith. The word dead means without life. It means useless. It means inoperative. 1 John, John writes the same thing. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. Listen to what he says. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need... Listen, we haven't even got to the part of how God's called us to reach the people that don't know Jesus yet. I'm just talking about how we relate to one another. James and John are just drawing the circle real narrow right now. It's just just brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to get deeper in this where you learn, hey, we got a whole world that we've been called to serve. But John says, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? That's a rhetorical question that John is asking, and here's the answer he's implying. The love of God doesn't abide in him. James goes on and gives us two examples, Abraham and Rahab. Two very different stories. Two very different backgrounds. What's the similarity? Here's the similarity. 
both of them professed a faith that you could see in the lives that they lived. Faith alone saves. The faith that saves is never alone. So here's the question I'm closing with. Do you have saving faith? James is addressing something that was happening in the church. A lot of people in the early church were saying, oh, I I believe. I put my faith in Jesus. And there was no evidence. There was no change. There was no Christ in them being lived through them. And James is challenging that. Listen, if there's ever been a moment for the church in America to listen to the words of the book of James, it is now. A profession of faith with our lips that isn't evident in the lives that we live in the community and in the world that's watching. James lands on a verse of Scripture here in James chapter 2, verse 19 that I'll finish with. And James tells us, first of all, that that faith that saves is not merely an intellectual faith. Look what he said. You believe that God is one? (laughs) You do well. So does every demon in hell. Intellectual faith is accepting a historical Jesus. Oh, I believe Jesus is God's son. I believe Jesus died on a cross. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe Jesus is coming again. I believe Jesus is a miracle worker. I believe all of that. Listen, so does every demon in hell. They intellectually know that to be. They don't just believe it. They know it to be true. Saving faith is not only not just intellectual, it's not just emotional. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe. Show me the next phrase. The next phrase. And say it out loud. That's a Greek word that, that literally describes the hair standing up on the back of your neck. The demons not only intellectually accept who Jesus is, they have an emotional response to who Jesus is. church is full in America of people who would give intellectual assent to who Jesus is and even have had their emotions stirred and fired up over who Jesus is like every demon in hell but the faith that saves it's not just intellectual faith, it's not just emotional faith It is faith that involves our intellect. We need to know the truth about Jesus. And there is a heart response of this. But the faith that saves is a volitional faith. It's not just the mind. It's not just the heart. It's the will. It's a surrendering of the control of your life. See, that's what the demons didn't do. They've never surrendered to Jesus. difference in the intellectual and the emotional is is when we get to that place of surrendering our lives to Christ. 
the 19th century, there was a famous French acrobat. He was known all over the world by his stage name. His stage name was Blondin. And Blondin performed these feats of the world of acrobatism, whatever you say it. He, he performed these feats all over the world and had, he was acclaimed internationally. And through newspapers in the 19th century, he made an announcement that he was going to do the greatest feat he'd ever set out to accomplish. He was going to take a tightrope and run it 1,100 feet across Niagara Falls. And after he took that tightrope and ran 1,100 feet across Niagara Falls, he was going to, with no harness, no safety net, no ropes, he was going to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. When the announcement was made, people showed up by the tens of thousands on both the Canadian and American sides of Niagara Falls to watch Blondin do this. The typewrite was stretched out, and he had a pole in his hand to balance, and he began to walk. I think we have a picture of it that they're going to pop up for you where you can see it. Blondin began to walk across Niagara Falls. It took him 22 minutes. The crowd literally held their breath. Nobody moved as Blondin, one foot in front of the other, just began to make his way across Niagara Falls. 22 minutes it took him. He got to the other side, took the last step, and on both sides, the, the, the crowds erupted in celebration and applause that Blondin had completed this unbelievable feat. But, but he wasn't satisfied. He, he did it again, and this time he pushed a wheelbarrow to the middle, turned around and came back. Then he did it again. He went back to the middle and he took a little skillet of some sort and he cooked an omelet and he ate an omelet sitting out over the middle of Niagara Falls and walked in. And the crowds again just went crazy and celebrated. Then he took his manager and he put his manager on his back. And he did it again, a fourth time across Niagara Falls with his manager just said, can you imagine all oh, every step? And when he got to the last step and he stepped off, again, the crowds just lost their minds. And Blondin turned to the crowds and he said, how many of you believe that I can do that again? And everyone began to cheer. We believe. We believe. Emotionally, they'd been moved and they'd been stirred. And Blondin looked back at the crowd and he said, Okay, I need one of you to get on. And nobody... believe in Jesus? Oh, I believe. <laughs> I believe. Believe he's God's son? I believe. You believe he died on a cross? I believe. Do you believe he rose again from the dead? I believe. Do you believe he's the only way to save? I, I, to be saved, I believe. Then here's what Jesus said. Here's the deal, man. When you get on, you give up control. Wherever Blondin stepped, that guy on his back 
He was, he was in at that point, right? He'd surrendered. That is saving faith. Saving faith is a surrender of the control of my life to Jesus that then begins to be evidenced through my life by the works. And that's what James teaches us about the relationship between faith and works. And here's the question for you today. Do you have saving faith? Thank you for listening to the Hope Church LV podcast. If you haven't done so already, go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Have a great rest of your day.